The following discussions are a further look into director Thomas W. Arlington and the tumultuous events of the final year of the Grant administration. This won't be an easy road to walk down, but I have faith that we will be stronger for following it to its conclusion. Through the Wind Door So as we round out our our uh, final look into these four chapters, we finally come to the end of it, uh, the chapter titled The Swordmaster. And while this chapter does introduce us to said Swordmaster, it doesn't happen immediately, and there's other things to cover first. Mm-hmm. The beginning of the chapter outlines in more detail all of the oppositional forces, both within and without the xenophobic crazed cults, the more complicated cult of Tremaine, and the forces in D.C. putting up anti-Thomas propaganda. One of the things, actually, that I was reminded on reviewing the book as opposed to the audio drama, because I, I, I listened to the audio drama first, and I, I believe you did, too? That is correct. Okay, so... When the chapter is referring to the posters that were put up, the book apparently has a graphical depiction of it. And I'm just thinking to myself, it seems from what happened that it was something that was actually created for the purpose of this thing as opposed to grabbed from elsewhere and... Um, used as a part of the book. I just, I, I picture Alex having to ask Antonio Torreson or somebody else to actually make a piece of anti-black propaganda. And it's just like, oh. I mean, I get what you're going for there, but oh, can you imagine having to like ask an artist, could you, could you make this thing for mm. my, because it has to be it has to be topical. It has to indicate what stuff was like back then or what mm-hmm. propaganda was like back then. But it still feels like a very, just like the experience of either having to voice or at, or asking one of your voice actors to voice the N-word is just... Mm-hmm. Anyway... It's about it's... giving utterance to that, even if the belief isn't behind it. It is... A painful task to ask of anyone and to an even more painful task to undertake. Yeah, exactly. Let me be clear that the choice to include these things is not a criticism of Alex. The amount of racially charged content included in New Century is actually pretty tame in comparison to things that I've seen in period-accurate media. It doesn't showcase a lot of endured violence on victimized people, for example. The strength of my reaction is coming more from a personal response, and then I don't think I could have managed to ask this of anyone. In fact, since the days of the cartographer's handbook, 
It seems that he's taken the responsibility of using these charged terms more upon himself rather than asking it of anyone else. I thought about potentially putting the graphic up in the show notes, but I, 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 I worry about putting that anywhere on the internet where people can see just that because just in case the visual itself causes someone to react without like reading the surrounding context. I think that is best like left to its surrounding context because yeah. if there's anything that uh, like the internet teaches us on the a both a sort of dumb and trivial matter like how everyone cites that moment in Final Fantasy X where Titus does that weird laugh and says like wow the voice acting in this is really weird and Meanwhile, a lot of the fans of that game say the point of that scene is that he is doing a deliberate weird laugh in order to make someone feel better. So, like, it's that sort of context there. And it's like, that's silly. It doesn't really matter. It's just minutiae of a video game. This is one of those things where it's like you don't want to, like, if an element can be taken out of context and especially a very instantly transmissible thing like an image an image Mm -hmm. just sort of immediately latches itself i don't think that's the sort of thing that like is best to sort of because that idea catches and latches and yeah that's that's a hard one to unsituate yeah that's actually a really good point there are certain things that are very mimetic and Mm. images can definitely be that under the right more than anything else, like, yeah. yeah. I mean, you you can inject new meaning to the point where the original, like, sort of intent behind it can almost become irrelevant because the way it's been used sort of takes on like the defining headspace in people's minds. Yeah. Anyway, the visual, the poster, mm. is incredibly offensive. And if you want to know what it is, then you'll have to get a copy of the book itself. And the details of the various groups are enough to rile any sensitive person. Mm. Which ironically leads to the unexpected part where Frank talks about killing children and then realizes that he might have inadvertently stepped in it with regards to what he now knows about Frederick. It also occurs to me that we have no idea if Frank himself had to do that with his own children or if they merely died due to the Wendigo rather than being infected. Yeah, that's a uh, that's tough because that you I imagine that uh, just the way that Frank is caught off guard probably means that if he was saying the words, he probably would have caught himself earlier mm-hmm. if that had been the case. Like, I, I will never say, like, let's sort of close the door on any possible interpretations of it. That does carry, like, sort of fascinating implications for considering that alternative possibility. But I think that the scene works best, and the Wendigo outside agrees with me, that it sort of appears as if, like, Frank has really sort of not necessarily considered all the information and that Mm. maybe it's because of his lack of lived experience. Frank has plenty of his own lived experience. I would just not specific to that. Yeah, not specific Mm. to that, but also I would argue that 
as so often happens in general, when we are emotionally riled up mm. for any reason, then yeah. we are less likely to consider the words that we're saying mm. before they come out of our mouth. And we know... We don't self-edit as yes, much. Yes, we don't self-edit as much. And we know that normally... Frank considers the words that come out of his mouth very carefully. Mm. Which <laughs> means that he believes, it, like, he is not just shooting from the hip when he, like, condemns this. And mm-hmm. I think that's what hurts most about it when he puts his foot in his mouth. Because just a few chapters ago, during his and Thomas's private conversation, we saw Thomas confide in Frank that he hopes that people knowing what Thomas has had to do will spark some empathy in them. Mm -hmm. Thomas allowed himself to be vulnerable, both to Frank and the broader American public, and Frank unwittingly conveyed to Thomas that some people may not actually empathize, but he, like, perhaps even condemn what he did, Mm -hmm. even if it was the hardest thing that Thomas ever had to do. It's a moment where Frank not only missteps and inadvertently says something that cuts a colleague superior and developing friend in a deep and personal place but actually highlights why one of thomas's most recent endeavors where he's laid his cards on the table may end up being for nothing for some people well the thing that one has to consider there i think is that part of the problem there is that the average listener i think is more likely to sympathize with someone who has been through something similar to what they themselves have been through. And that is what Thomas hopes in all Mm. of this. But the problem is, is that now that they know Thomas is a black man, if they have natural distrust for black people, that can potentially work in the opposite direction and Mm. make them more likely to, as you say, be antagonistic towards him and and therefore get in the way of the actual sympathy. Basically, yes. Be like, well, it, he did this because he was a black man and I would never do this to my own child well, because I am a white person and so therefore inherently... Ugh. Without... Uh, yes, it's it's something that can give rise to or leave open to people second-guessing the motivation behind the action or the circumstances around it. It's a very good scene because I think it just, it has broad implications about just the growing, the continual effort to try and win over the American public, but it also has smaller scale and more personal ramifications that I wouldn't say that this is a turning point that means that because of what Frank says, he has ruined this relationship. It doesn't go that way, but it is very much just something that, like, hurts. That's the best way I can put it. That it's uh, it's, it's like that 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 um, specific moment in Telltale narrative games where mm, that it would flash up on the screen, going, "Thomas will remember that." I think that was, in all seriousness, those moments are probably the best use of that because there's the big, like, obvious signpost moments of deviation where it's like, I decided to side with this person and kill this character before they can turn into a 
uh, zombie and it's like the daughter of the person you decided to kill will remember that it's like frankly i would be surprised if they didn't like that is <laughs> like it's more like i think the moments where that line was more impactful to me is if you sort of say something that's kind of a bit more like it's a p- moment of personal reflection and then someone around you said like it has that they will remember that and it just sort of even if it doesn't necessarily amount to much thank you even if it doesn't necessarily amount to much that is the sort of things the little pitfalls of conversation that i think we all can be quite apprehensive about and fearful of and i think in those moments where we lie awake at night just thinking back on whether it's the day's events or a day long forgotten where we made that mistake where we know i really wish that i had not said that and that's such a human thing i think they're in amidst all of the grand scale politics that you and i can't like it's difficult for us we can imagine what it's like to navigate political like circumstances like that Mm -hmm. but interpersonal relationships that is quite a sharply relatable moment of fuck i i hadn't thought of that Mm -hmm. damn it damn it yeah one of the things that i specifically wrote about this first part of the chapter is that frank reflects on the idea of of everyone waiting for something to happen something grand and terrible and unavoidable as if Mm. the daily challenges we faced were not enough to warrant our full acceptance of a committed life it has now been revealed and greater sum, the many issues that the RSA has to deal with, aside from the Wendigo introduced in the handbook. But they are all potential dangers rather than dangers fully flared up into prominence. And it's at this point, one should point out that the chapter ends with the revelation of what happened with Hayes and Annie and the Manticore. So Mm. in that way, the Frank's comment is sort of foreshadowing the end of the chapter. This could well be the thing that mm-hmm. everyone was waiting for without knowing it. Yes, it's that like calm before the storm mm-hmm. idea that's like there's something that like we're all sitting on a powder keg and we're just waiting for the match. And you don't know what that is going to be. You just know you'll know it when you see it. Mm-hmm. And I think that there is this feeling of tension and fearful anticipation that characterizes Cold Wars and the point that these characters are in. And going back to like earlier in the chapter when Thomas is weighing up these numerous sources of conflict and threats and thinking that if just one day they happen to all unify or even Mm. just attack on the same day even if they're not united they are fucked Mm -hmm. and he emphasizes that with like Mm -hmm. a capital f Mm -hmm. and that's that's cold war fear it's that idea that there is 
very little standing in the way of someone in the world that you have no access or way of affecting just deciding to end the world as we all know it mm -hmm. even if it's not the literal end of the world you can just flip a switch and reshape the landscape of the world and that's just like in a very unstable time in america in this world that is what they are fearful of but not just in a sense of this could happen but it almost feels as if like this is an inevitability that all of this that's building up and accumulating things are going to set off and now we're at that point where we remember oh yeah i know how this book began and mm -hmm. we're suddenly at that destabilizing moment at the beginning of the book so there's an unnerving feeling that even if the eruption hasn't gone off yet, a fuse has most certainly been lit. Yeah, actually, in some of your notes here, you make reference to kindling and gunpowder. Yes. And in this particular chapter, the way it begins is us identifying a new bunch of kindling and gunpowder, so to speak, mm. in... Like we've already we already know about this group that is going around with blood red hoods is symbolic mm -hmm. of the clan uh, mm -hmm. as related to the stuff that happened in chapter four and what Sarah was asking for assistance uh, for with General Curtis's troops and everything like that. Then we found out about Tremaine's knights. And the complex danger that they represent in terms of like, yes, we need their help. And by courting them, we're hoping that they will not become a problem later on, even though now that we've seen Tremaine in action, it feels like he is going to eventually become a problem. Um, mm -hmm. But also all of these other xenophobic or doomsday or just generally antagonistic forces out there that the RSA is aware of. All of these different problems be like, okay, which, what's going to set off first with these things? And the actual match is none of them. It's a manticore just ate our vice president, and that's not something that any of them are prepared for. What it is, is that like this chapter, I love that you make the point that like with fearing all of these known quantities that we have no way of like disarming and then it's something else that comes in because it's basically we have a house of cards and some of the cards are trying to light themselves on fire <laughs> and even as we're doing with that someone threw a bowling ball from the side <laughs> and it's just like god damn what like what why why a manticore yeah why? exactly <laughs> i forget where i initially heard it but it was like the I think the, it was initially a quote somewhere from, like, Alfred Hitchcock or something like that. Like, the whole experience mm. of, if you set off a bomb, this happens. If you tell the audience, a bomb is going to go off at some point. In this case, the manticore introduced in Chapter 1 is that eventual bomb, basically. And it's only now, in this chapter, that it's caught up with the, the ongoing narrative that we've been following for several other chapters now. 
Yeah, you sort of get the best of both worlds, though, don't you? Because you get the, like, surprise Mm -hmm. of being there in the moment. But because it happens in the future and we start the story proper, like, dialing back a bit, you essentially have that surprise of being there in the moment and the foresight of knowing that it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And you're just worrying about, like, this has to happen at a point where the country isn't in a really bad state and things aren't too unstable. And then Thomas just sits there and goes, this is how unstable the country is. And you go, oh, no. And (laughs) then phone call, why, yes, what, Manticore? And you're like, of course. (laughs) Yeah, that entire experience with, like, he doesn't even understand what the other person is saying on the other end because it's using words that he's never heard before or something like that or just like i imagine he may like i don't know i'd have to re-listen to it but it might be that like he's confused because he knows full well what it is because if you hear like a you know a manticore you would just go like what is that term like what are you referring to but like if you hear uh this person was killed by a dragon you go like I'm sorry, a what? Like, I, like, it strikes me that, like, if anyone would have, like, a lot of the education to know or to, like, be able to actually sort of hear the word manticore and know full well what it means, but not understand what the heck it's doing in, like, this reality, that Thomas has a better chance than most. I mean, I suppose that's true. I mean, we do know now, like, all of the effort that Thomas put into educating himself as soon as he had access to the same resources as everyone else. I guess I just find it more likely that it would be something that you and I are familiar with, Mm. because in the modern era, we've sort of steeped ourselves in a lot of specifically fantasy literature and stuff like that. I knew what a manticore was without even having to look it up because I'm I'm a huge D and D nerd specifically, mm. but um, well maybe Thomas is a huge D and D nerd. D and D doesn't exist yet. Hey, alternate uh, place we don't know. Yeah, but no. <laughs> okay, no. but like sidebar. Yeah. How much would you like for a book that is just a D and D session with like the crew of Steamheart? <laughs> I'm just saying. Who's the DM in that setup? That's an interesting question, too. Yes. I mean, Raven. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think you're probably right. Raven would definitely be the DM under those circumstances. Uh, (laughs) It it occurs to me, I can't, uh, I can't say this, Uh, but (laughs) like, okay, there is at least one person. That could, in theory, bring the idea of Dungeons and Dragons to New Century. Uh, and we both yes, know who it actually is. Actually, there is. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where we're going to leave it because uh, discussion of this particular book is full of spoilers we, and we not have for... to leave this as an outtake with a certain proviso. We have to, but yeah, exactly. Anyway. <laughs> Going back to the main content. Yeah, no, the the reason why I brought it up is that the way it's laid out 
in the text. We understand what he actually heard because he later outlines it. But when he gets that call initially, um, the, the text is specifically... Say that again. Vice President Hayes has been avowed by a fly scooping iron in Ohio. Uh, and then he goes on to clarify what was actually said was a flying scorpion lion. Uh, I don't think that the term manticore actually comes up until the next chapter when Jeremy and Donald get to unlimber all of their, uh, what's the word, um, unicorn and Sindo knowledge uh, and everything like that, because they're the ones that know the most about mythical creatures and everything like that. The only mm. way that they're able to describe the manticore at this point is by like, okay, so it's a lion, but it has a scorpion tail and it has wings. That's the only way that the soldiers in Ohio can explain it. So that's the term that they use. And in the meanwhile, Thomas is like, is not understanding what he's hearing. So he's like, wait, am I hearing different words here? It's like, no, 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 sir. It's a flying scorpion line. Oh, okay. That makes slightly more sense, but we got to have a meaning about but, it. <laughs> you know what it is, is that like Thomas hears that and it's like, like, Okay, a very good question would be, what are you saying? They clarify uh -huh. what they're saying, and he just goes, that just raises further questions. <laughs> yes, yes, the, the meme of, of choice in there. Yeah, exactly. So we rushed ahead to the end of the episode at this point, so let's, let's dial it back. Mm -hmm. yes. um, after the oopsie boingo with, uh, between Frank and Thomas, Harry comes in on like a peak of emotional turmoil as regards these various dangerous groups. I think it was after the point where Thomas was going, we are all fucked if they ally uh, with each other. And this is where we get taken to Weapons Lab A, which was referred to earlier all the way back in Chapter 2 when Corporal Higgins was taking Frank around. Now we actually get to see Weapons Lab A where we get to finally meet the Swordsmaster, Yagyu. There is a little bit more going on there because we see Samuel Tudor. I don't think that he speaks in this episode, but Samuel Tudor is there doing his work with somebody else who is, like, padded and everything like that. I can hear Alex head-desking all the way from across the pond at this point, because the scene I was remembering with Tudor and the man called Hillerick actually came from Chapter 8 of Steamheart, which I had been re-listening to at the time during my daily commute, and therefore that scene got transposed into my memory when I was recording with Toby. I will also add that while Tudor has no scripted lines in Arlington, Spencer does get to voice the weaponsmith again during the transition where Tudor hands the phone to Thomas. And so, again, we get one of those moments where, like, hey, it's this guy, all the way back from, um, from the cartographer's handbook and everything like that. He get, we get to see him doing his thing. But the greater focus on, naturally, is the man who the chapter itself is named after. I looked up the meaning of his name and found the kanji of Yagyu 
to be made of two parts, the character for Willow and a character that translates as life or birth. Um, one could attempt to draw individual meaning for that name from those terms, but it's far more likely that this could be a reference to the Yagyu family, who were known heads of the greatest schools of swordsmanship. Mm. Uh, they did this, this is what gets to happen when you do a little bit of research and try and figure out if there is meaning <laughs> present in there, especially since we already know that Alex tends to pick names that are relevant to whatever it is that he's writing. We just don't always know what, the, what that relevance is. Master Yagyu himself carries a calm mentor quality about him, not unlike uh, one of our favorites, Uncle Iroh, but also reiterates that quality that we keep coming back to about someone in search of a place where they can be of use. I like that Yagyu is characterized as someone who has seen more of America than most. He is not just the wizened Japanese mentor from a far-off land. He is emphatically of America as well, and has a deep appreciation for its geography and sites, and a lived experience and understanding of its various climates. The comparisons to Iroh are apt. We always love Ira's wisdom because it feels born out of experience. That it's not abstract and theoretical philosophy, but fundamentally grounded in the practicalities of living life one day at a time and facing its numerous struggles. Yagyu is a craftsman and someone who has lived a full life here in America and is the sort of calming presence you desperately wish you could know in your life he is a very easy person to like straight away in stark contrast to agent lee and her sharpness yeah i mean they are coming from different cultures i believe i think absolutely is... that is not like intended it is more just a point of first impressions not mm. so like in that they are pre-existing colleagues of uh thomas yeah. that he places a lot of trust in both of them to different capacities in different areas. Sorry, I uh, didn't mean to interrupt, but did want no. to clarify that. Yeah, no, I didn't I, I didn't think that there was any... Conflation? Conflation, necessarily. Um, but you're absolutely right that in terms of the relationship that Thomas has with both of them does seem to be of a quality that is different like what's going on between him and frank is still developing at this point he has a strong connection with lee and with yagyu that we can see from our introduction to them and the importance either in the the capacity of the work or possibly in yagyu's case his relationship to Harry, the two of them working very well together, apparently. And anyone who treats his daughter with respect is more likely to get on well with Thomas, I think. Uh, he has a natural protectiveness of his family. And so therefore, people that, that develop a rapport with Sarah or with Harry 
are naturally people that Thomas is going to be more likely to trust in general. On top of that, it's over very quickly. It doesn't focus on it, which is good, because then the parallels between Yagyu and Iroh would be a little bit too on the nose, is that Master Yagyu will refer to um, the the tea that has uh, a calming quality. Jasmine tea. <laughs> and we already know how Uncle Iroh feels about tea, as opposed to hot leaf juice and all that sort of thing. <laughs> Uncle, that's what old tea is. <laughs> how could a member of my own family say something so horrible? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was one of the greatest moments of that's... Last Airbender. It's to me what I love is that like of all the things that Zuko has said that Iroh has had patience for, it's like you will hush your insolence. <laughs> like um, that is the point, but we shan't go down that rabbit hole. We'll save it for a divergent diatribe. Is maybe what we could call a spin-off episode mm-hmm. where we talk about other media. Yeah, exactly. We talked about this a little bit earlier, but you mentioned very specifically the difference between how we feel about Master Yagyu as opposed to how we feel about Agent Lee. Mm -hmm. And some of that is framed through the way Frank responds to them. Mm. Because obviously Thomas responds to them equally. He has developed his own relationship with them and everything like that. But this chapter is the second time that we see agent lee and that's when we see a little bit more of the fleshing out in terms of how frank feels about lee and it's where he also makes the comment of feeling unlikely that the two of them will ever be friends or anything like that she seems to get his hackles up which it's just like we're going to see more of her as the story progresses, being that mm. she is Thomas's right-hand person, the obvious answer is, of course, that Lee is his spymaster. Toby commented that she could have been his bodyguard, and in retrospect she might have played that role once upon a time. This, of course, led me to wondering why Butler was chosen for the role he was back at the beginning of the story. Butler would be someone new, after all, someone that Thomas would have to let in, the man that lets so few in. But in retrospect, the answer is obvious. Lee would serve perfectly well as a hidden bodyguard, but it would work much better to free her up to be his eyes and ears and hands in the shadows. Butler, on the other hand, was not only such a storied army man, but he was also the one that had brought down the rebellious Captain Sykes. As someone that appreciates the importance of sending a message, having Butler openly as his bodyguard would send such a message to onlookers. More specifically, other potential rogue elements of the RSA. That said, Toby had a very amusing idea to share during conversation. In a lesser version of this book... It would like Arlington would go. This is Katana. <laughs> She's cut my back. Oh God! Yeah. 
I would advise not getting. Uh, can't, I can't do the the, the Thomas no, voice, no, but I can no. just imagine Thomas being like, "I would advise not being killed by her." <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll get killed by someone else then. That sounds like a good like. Like if I'm gonna die, then at least let it not be by Agent Lee. She would yeah, make it. That... She would make it very painful. Uh... <laughs> No, Lee, we have not seen much of her, and I think that's a very good first impression for her, because obviously, like, we don't get a good first impression of her, that's the point, Mm -hmm. but it is also equally the point that you don't get much of an impression of her at all, that it's just what she twists the subject of conversation back around to Frank, as I mentioned earlier when we were mentioning that initial con- confrontation and it means that she is going to be one of the last members of this group of people working towards a common cause that you get to like you may never get that insight but if you do it's going to come at a later point and you know with a lot more work involved at the very least it's less likely to happen while Frank is the point of view character. Like something could happen in the future where the two of them do have a moment where they get on or they finally come to some proper accord and everything like that. It's not impossible. It's just what has been laid out in the story so far sort of belies that possibility. But being that Arlington, the book, is one that is written about from multiple points of view, then it's entirely possible if we learn more about Agent Lee down the road, it's going to be when the point of view or the focus is on Thomas, because Thomas clearly has a rapport with Lee that other people don't have, Harry Arlington mm. included. Yeah, it's. I think it is uh, important that we see that it's not that like all of the Arlingtons trust her or like her, that this is very much that, like, I think Thomas's personality probably leans more towards her, but we see that Harry is just like, no, not a fan, just not a fan. And mm-hmm. we we are inclined to favour Harry's impression because we really like Harry already. Yes. So it's just like, yeah, yeah. We're with you on that, Harry. Yeah. I mean, our discussion about mm-hmm. the Arlington family specifically began with the Thanksgiving chapter. That's where we get to see all of them together. And mm. then we get a sense of... We've, we've already gotten a sense of what they are like people mm. in different circumstances. The Thanksgiving chapter helped us to get a sense of what they're like when they're all together Mm -hmm. and how well they do or don't get on during a moment of downtime, so to speak. While listening to one of the previous episodes, Alex commented that the first line from Chapter 9 was a reflection of the opening line from Arrested Development. And while the Arlington family is not nearly as dysfunctional as the Bluths, There's a comedic line that I've always enjoyed. 
Family pushes buttons like a peyote dealer working straight commission. Even in loving families, there are interactional patterns being revisited. Personality clashes, history, and trauma. Even in the best of circumstances, it can be true at the same time that parents did the best they could for their children and that their choices still wounded them. It certainly has been true for me, but I digress. One of the things mentioned, actually, at some point, and I don't remember if it was in conversation between you and I or if it was one in one of those Discord conversations, is the idea that our natural focus on the title of this story is that it's Thomas's story because he is the focus of the cartographer's handbook and therefore mm-hmm. the one that we know to be the, the mover and shaker of stuff that's going on in the RSA. Put it this way, if you don't have a familiarity with Arlington Cemetery, which I did mm-hmm. not, mm-hmm. by the point you get to this book in New Century, the only version of Arlington that you are familiar with is Thomas. Mm, yeah. That, of course, opens up as this, well, as the book does. Yeah, well, that's the that, that's the thing, is that now that we've gotten to this point in the story, and we see that every member of the Arlington family has their own role in the narrative, one could almost see that it's a book about the entire family, with maybe a particular focus on Thomas and Sarah, because they are the 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 the, the co-directors of the NIA and the ones that are most likely to have journal entries that contribute to the story. Like we, you know, there's there's stuff from Frank, and there will be more stuff from Annie going forward as we start exploring her influence in the story. But a lot of the time. If it's not one of those two, then it's either going to be whatever Thomas is currently up to or whatever Sarah is currently up to. Mm. And and Truth and Harry are part of it, too. Maybe Harry a little bit more than Truth, but like they're all still subjects of the story as opposed to objects. Mm. There is an emphasis on this is not... Arlington's family. Mm. This is the Arlington family, mm-hmm. where like each one is just expanding what we know of like just it's not necessarily a question of we know more about Thomas because we get to see all these different connections to him. It's that with each one you want to get to know each of them better, mm-hmm. but you see how they overlap and inform upon one another and that's Mm -hmm. what a real family feels like it's not Mm -hmm. just a narrative device to add like more paragraphs to someone's character sheet you know what i mean it's just and that's what i I appreciate about how they've all been characterized and in this chapter i adore the way that harry comes into play here when Mm -hmm. Like, we were talking about how after Thomas is just, like, he is having a... It's not really an anxiety attack. It's, like, it could be. You could 
like argue that it is, but it is absolutely just a implosion of frustration. And well, it's, Harry, it's anger. It's yeah, anger, it's anger. Remember. It's anger. That, like that, that's, that's, I'm trying to overcomplicate it, but he is angry. He is he one is, of the angriest men that Sarah has ever met. Yes, that, uh, that's what I was leading to. Is, is yeah. this is an example that mm. Sarah was basically foreshadowing? Yeah, uh, in terms of yeah, <laughs> theory and supporting evidence. So, yeah, like exactly. this is it, it, that's what it is, and. But what I love about how Harry responds to that, Mm -hmm. she is not someone... You can tell that she isn't the sort of person who will be able to come to someone and say, like, be able to and, like, put together the right sort of combination of words to say that, like, okay, let's talk this through. But she's someone who is always actively doing things and putting things together and that's her method of expression. Mm-hmm. But in this instance, it becomes her method of communication. Mm-hmm. And so her con- contribution here is so welcome. She builds something for her father that helps address at least one of his concerns, which is the, like, he feels vulnerable and exposed. Mm-hmm. And the emotional good that that does is really appreciated both by Thomas and the audience after having so many things so efficiently set up in this first part of the book that shows how unstable everything is and conveys and justifies exactly why Annie described the situation as, and I'm quoting here, a notch above desperate. Like the development with the manticore is a damn it moment, but this moment with Harry is that small gesture that doesn't fix everything, but does a lot. So it's a sort of more profound version of someone who's having a rough day and just bringing them a cup of tea. Just that sort of like a gesture that like you are doing something that you may not explicitly talk and confront what they're saying, but just the action of doing it shows a consideration and an action on that person's part. And you love it because it is an expression of love and a desire to help, not just to keep someone alive, but to put their concerns at ease, even if it's just a little bit. I was originally going to have just this last episode be extra long, even with the outtakes. But due to the fact that I kept adding editorial inserts, that our next recording got delayed, and the fact that real life has been getting in the way of getting the edits done, I'm cutting this conversation short to pick it back up next week, so that I have this week's episode done, and I can focus on prep work for the following session and Jesse Ferguson's interview notes. So tune in next time for the thrilling conclusion to this conversation and our thoughts on Chapter 12, as well as the end of Arlington, Part 1. To close us out, I thought about picking a song from my list indicative of Thomas's anger, and I had a few in mind that could match it. But to be honest, I know that Alex is having a bit of a hard time of it right now, so instead, I'm going to pick a song of hope from one of the bands ingrained in my memory from when I was a boy, sitting in my father's living room, listening to his stereo. Until next time. 
This is Fleetwood Mac with Don't Stop. <laughs> 